0: Okay. Thanks, uh, Gary. Good to have you back, Gary, and thanks, Peter. Uh, If you've got your Bibles there, please keep them open at 1 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to go through that again. And as I say each week, it's great to have uh, your your Bibles physically open there with you so you can follow along and make sure that I'm saying what the Bible is saying and also just to keep familiar with um, the words in the context of, of your own Bibles. And as I said, there will be a chance for questions that might come up on the way through. So if you have any questions, just keep a note of them as we go through. or write them down and there'll be a question time later on. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words were written so long ago, 3,000 years ago, and yet they still speak to us um, because it is your spirit who caused them to be written and it's your spirit that works in our hearts and minds. And we do ask that he will be at work in us today to help us to hear and to hear with the ears of faith and the faith that leads to obedience and we pray these things in jesus name amen what do you do when you are confronted by your own guilt Uh, perhaps for something that you've done or maybe something that you've not done that you should have maybe it's something that someone else has pointed out for you and brought to your attention or just your own conscience has kind of made you aware of that what do you do with that Or perhaps better, what should you do with that? That's the question that we're looking at today. Because today in this passage in 1 Samuel 12, the people of Israel are confronted by a recognition of their own wrongdoing. And it brings them to, I guess you could say, a fork in the road. They've got a decision to make. Two futures are open to them. And what God says to them in that moment is what God also says to us. And so we will do well to hear it. And let's get straight into it. The first section that we're looking at has a vindication and an accusation. That's in, the, in verses 1 to 13. And it begins and ends that section by describing the situation that the relationship between Israel and God are, is in at this point. That is, Israel have asked for a king because they weren't happy with the situation with God as their king. And so now they have one. And Samuel summarizes that for them in verse 1 and then again in verse 13. Let me read verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. And then down in verse 13, he says again, now here is the king you've chosen, the one you have asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. That's the situation that the relationship between Israel and God is in at this point, and it's not good. God has given them the king that they've asked for, but it's also very clear that in asking for a king, they have rejected God as their king. And as we're reading this, it really sounds like the description of a broken relationship between God and Israel, And the verses in between verses 1 and 13 tell us briefly how we got to that situation and whose fault it is. This is the vindication and the accusation. You see, the first vindication is in verses 2 to 5, and that's the vindication of Samuel, the prophet. So in those verses, Samuel asks the people, like we just had to read out, Samuel asks the people, was I the problem? Was it my bad leadership? Or my corruption that has led to the breakdown in relationship between you and between God? Was Samuel corrupt? Was he lining his own pockets? Was he in it just for his own benefit? And Israel themselves give the answer as we had to say. No, they said. Let me read verse 4 again. You have not cheated us or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel was not the problem. Next, in verse 6 to 11, is a vindication of God. But this time, it's not so much a question as a statement that God has only been good and righteous in his actions towards Israel. And, And you see, in verse 7, Samuel says, Now then, stand here because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. And then Samuel does just exactly that. He lays out before them their history, the history of the relationship between God and Israel, how God has continually protected and provided for them throughout their history, even though Israel kept forgetting and turning away from God. Every time they'd forget God and they'd turn away from him and they'd get themselves into trouble and then they'd cry out to God for help and God came to their rescue again and again and again. That's their history. God has always been there for them. God was not the problem. So that's the vindication. Now we come to the accusation. And this is where Samuel turns to Israel's part. And you see in verse 12, he begins, but you. God has always been there for you. But at the first sign of trouble, he says, when they saw Nahash king of the Ammonites coming against them, they panicked. They didn't even cry out to God for help like their ancestors had. They said, we want a better solution. We want to be like the nations around us who are attacking us instead of having to rely on God to protect us. And so he says in verse 12, You said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. And that's really, if you've been here over the past few weeks, that's what we've been hearing about in the past four chapters really of one Samuel. And so we return in verse 13 to the situation that Israel find themselves in. Samuel says, "Now here is the king who you have chosen, the one you asked for." And it almost, as I said, does sound like a summary of the broken relationship. It almost sounds like a parting of the ways between God and Israel as if God is now taking, handing over the, the rule of Israel to this new king that they've asked for and says here is the king that you've asked for. And it it reminds me of uh, something that happens in workplaces sometimes these days, which is exit interviews. I don't know if anyone's ever been involved in an exit interview. I see a few nods. Apparently it's a thing now where when a working relationship and employment is coming to an end for whatever reason, good or bad, there's become a practice where the employer and the employee will sit down together and talk about how the working relationship has gone. And they'll each give feedback to the other about, you know, what they can do better, perhaps, for next time. It's not trying to kind of reconcile the relationship so that they can go forward together. The relationship is over for whatever reason. They're just reflecting on how things have gone. And as I read this, it sounds kind of like an exit interview between God and Israel, except in this case, the fault is entirely on one party. It's entirely on the people of Israel they say god says this is the situation that we've got to and this is how we got there but the blame is all on israel and israel themselves acknowledge that as we can continue to see but my point is it seems like the relationship is over at this point but as we're about to see in the next verses that is not quite the case this is not a parting of the ways but it is a fork in the road into the future and it's here that we see the amazing graciousness of god and the choice that israel face the graciousness of god is there in verse 14 where god says to them even now even now he says if if you and your king together will serve and obey the lord then you will be my people Yet yeah, god's heart is so big And his love for his people is so great that he is giving them the opportunity to continue to be his people from now on. Both them and their new king, who is the symbol of their rejection of him, he says, together you can be my people. But Israel have a choice to make. They're standing at a fork in the road. Are they and their king going to follow the Lord from now on? Or are they going to turn against him? in which case God will turn against them. That's the choice that they have. And it's remarkable that they even have that opportunity, but it's still a choice that is before them. And then to make it perfectly clear that Samuel is speaking with the very authority of God and that they know, that, you know who, who it is they're dealing with, Samuel gives them a sign from God. And that's the, the thunderstorm at, at harvest time. Apparently it was, it was unheard of for a thunderstorm at harvest time and so samuel says that's what's going to happen god is going to do this supernatural thing so that you know who it is that you're dealing with and that he genuinely is displeased with what you have done and that's exactly what happened A thunderstorm comes and we hear at the end of verse 18 all the people stood in awe of the lord and of samuel and not just in awe they're terrified did you see that? Israel are now confronted by the power of the one who they're dealing with. Yeah, they, they, they said that they couldn't trust God to save them, and now they're seeing that this is the one who has the power over thunder and lightning. And they're facing the terrifying realisation that they have turned away from him. They've done wrong by him. And so they're terrified, and understandably so. And now I've called this next point Israel Repent, But that's probably putting it a little bit too strongly. verse 19 tells us that what Israel do is they acknowledge that what they've done is evil. They recognise their guilt, which is the first part, but that's not the whole thing of repenting. It's not quite the same. Repenting means then turning away from that, what they've acknowledged. Changing direction, going the opposite way to where they have been going. That is, however badly they might feel about what they've done, however remorseful they might feel however afraid they might be because of it that's not quite the same as repenting that bit is still to come as we're going to see in a moment and that kind of two-part process reminds me of another situation a thousand years later and another crowd that were also being confronted with a wrong that they had done it was the first time the apostle peter had preached To a crowd just weeks after Jesus had died and risen to life again. And Peter confronts them with evidence of their guilt. He says, you have killed the king that God sent to save you. That's pretty serious. And I love the words that describe how the people respond to that accusation. It says, they were cut to the heart. You can't get much more kind of strong words than that can not you can you cut to the very heart with the gravity of what they've done but they don't leave it there and this is vital they then plead with peter and the apostles and they say what shall we do and peter says to them repent that is turn from that direction that you are going to follow the lord follow the true king jesus And they do exactly that. And 3,000 souls were saved that day, we're told. What a wonderful day that was. They acknowledged their guilt and they turned to God in repentance. And I do think it really is important for us to recognise the connection between those two things, but also the distinction that they're not exactly the same thing. That is being confronted by and recognising and acknowledging our guilt, which is important. But then secondly, to actually turn from it turning from whatever direction we've been going to God to follow and serve him. And this is what God calls every single one of us to do. And if you're here today, if you're listening online and you haven't yet done that, then what better time to do it than today? At least talk to someone about it. Talk to me. Talk to someone that you know. Now is the day to hear what God says and to turn to him and repent. And coming back to our final paragraph of our passage and our final section, we see these same two aspects again in this last paragraph where Samuel gives the people both a comfort and a challenge. A comfort and a challenge. And the comfort, again, is the amazing graciousness of God towards them. Because Israel, remember, are terrified and overwhelmed by the gravity of what they have done in rejecting and offending God. And they're just realising that. But then Samuel begins that last paragraph with those wonderful words in verse 20. You see what he says? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Israel had every reason to be afraid, except for the fact of the remarkable graciousness of God. And he continues down in verse 22. Have a look at it there, 22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. You see, within the heart of God, there was a choice to not reject his people because that's what God is like. And because of that, Samuel can say to them, do not be afraid. Despite what they have done, God's heart was open towards them. And isn't that a wonderful thing to know, particularly when we are confronted by our own guilt before God, and perhaps when we're fearing that maybe God has had enough of me and of my failures. Samuel's words to them should ring loudly in our ears too. Do not be afraid. This is the God who Jesus spoke about in the parable of the prodigal son, that you may know, who welcomed his wayward son home with open arms and an open heart because that's what he is like. And Jesus himself has made the way for us to turn back to God, to come home to him. Just like Samuel prayed for Israel in verse 23 there, we have Jesus who permanently speaks to God on our behalf. And so we know that God's heart is always open towards us through Jesus. That's the comfort. But there is also a challenge. And you see it right through those final verses in that last last paragraph. So verse 20 says, Do not be afraid, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. It's important to recognise our guilt before God and in doing that to know the grace of God in forgiveness. But at the same time, it is vital to turn to the Lord and to turn away from whatever it is that we have been confronted by. And Israel get that final challenge and warning in the last two verses. Look at verse 24 and 25 now. It says, verse 24, But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Do you notice that in the very same breath, Samuel says, Do not be afraid, but do fear the Lord. It almost sounds like like a paradox, like an impossible contradiction. And, and some people try to talk about that contradiction by describing that second good fear of the Lord as being this kind of reverence and respect. And I think there's something helpful in that. But I think it's also bigger than that. I've got a friend who, who talks about this in terms of his diving with sharks. I don't know if anyone goes diving with sharks. My friend's a little bit crazy. Any crazy people here? To, don't, yeah, there's a few of us dive with sharks. He says to me that he knows the the conditions and the equipment and the type of sharks and the type of behaviours that he needs to be aware of so that he can do that safely. And with all of that in mind, he says he doesn't need to be afraid. He can be confident that he is safe, even diving with those sharks. But at the same time, he has a healthy fear of them. He knows what they're capable of. He knows not to treat them lightly, not to mess with them or be careless with them. And those two go together for him. He can rightly enjoy it and be, and be comfortable and not afraid because he also has a healthy fear of them. And I think that kind of does go to the, the idea of having confidence to not be afraid before God and yet to still fear the Lord rightly so that we do do what he says here, that we commit ourselves... To serve the Lord faithfully with our whole heart and to not persist in doing evil. And this really is where repentance, what what we've been talking about a moment ago, is both the beginning of the Christian life and also the ongoing character, the everyday character of the Christian life. And it requires us to hold both the comfort and the challenge together. It begins, as I said, with recognising our guilt before God or just how we need to recommit ourselves to serving the Lord faithfully each day, perhaps in ways that we haven't been recently. And sometimes we do need someone to point that out for us and sometimes our conscience does that work on our hearts. And then we can bring that to God with confidence and know the comfort that his heart is always open to us. And so we don't need to be afraid because we come to him through Jesus. But we don't stop there, because we also need to hear the challenge, to turn away from whatever it is that we've been confronted by, so that we do increasingly serve the Lord with all our heart. And I know the temptation is often to skip one of those two things, you know, either skip the comfort or skip the challenge. So we skip the comfort, perhaps, and we think then that our, our task is to earn our way back into god's favor you know I've, I've gotten in his bad books and I need to earn my way back into his favor or we just live in fear and so we stay away from god and that's not the way forward either that's not trusting the comfort that we have through jesus or we skip the challenge and we don't hear the message of verse 25 that coming to god through jesus and knowing his gracious towards us actually needs to make a difference In our lives so that we don't persist in doing evil as it says there and that we do increasingly seek to serve him with all of our life i wonder which of those perhaps you're more likely to skip i know for myself it could be either on any given day but we need to hold them together and the two go together excuse me the new testament talks about the difference in this kind of way between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow and it says that godly sorrow leads to repentance and it leaves no regret because whatever it is we leave it at the foot of the cross and we walk away from it and we know the confidence that we can have before god and we leave that behind but worldly sorrow is what we might sometimes call remorse yes it has the feeling of feeling bad but it's missing both the grace that gives confidence and the repentance that turns away and it leads to that terrible spiral of self-loathing and self-pity that eats you up on the inside but it doesn't actually lead to a positive change it doesn't actually lead to repentance because it doesn't bring us back to God with the confidence to stand in his presence we need to recognize both God's graciousness towards us in Jesus and the call to serve him faithfully and as i read this i find myself thinking just how good it would be if every one of us held on to these two the comfort of knowing no fear before god because of jesus and the challenge to fear the lord and serve him faithfully with all of our hearts knowing the great things that he has done for us let's pray that we will Heavenly Father, you do know our hearts and our minds even better than we know ourselves. Um, Help us to know that we cannot hide things from you. And even more than that, Father, help us to know that we don't need to because of Jesus. But Father, we do ask that as we recognise the warm generosity of your heart towards us through Jesus and the confidence that gives us to you, that it will draw us towards you and away from whatever it is that we are confronted by in our lives, that we do seek to serve you with all of our heart. And we ask that as we do this, it will lead all the more to your honour and glory in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.